0: The Voice of Aged Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Julie Badgick Smith, and in over a decade, I have supported hundreds of older adults to improve their well being in late life. This podcast offers an authentic insight into aged care, practical tips, and all the inspiration to keep you going. I truly believe that every older person needs to feel heard, loved, and understood and it is my mission to halve the depression rates in Australian aged care facilities by 2022. Hi, today I wanted to talk about a very important topic, and it's discussing uh, the importance of mental health and mental health conditions in older people. You see quite often mental health conditions are undetected, undiagnosed and not treated and this goes across the lifespan. So what I want to focus on in, in in this episode is defining what a mental health condition is and I wanted to do it by discussing a case study with you of an older person who moved into an aged care facility. The purpose of that is to demonstrate to you the type of symptoms that she had and how she came about to seek psychological support. And not only that, I wanted to talk to you more broadly about the support that she, she received and where she is today. And to highlight the importance of working together with families, with staff members to improve well-being in all the people in residential care. But before I jump and do that, I wanted to talk to you about the prevalence of mental health conditions in general. So I get quite surprised when I present at conferences and I talk to some aged care managers and and staff and when I talk about mental illness. And the issue seems to be about the awareness of mental illness in aged care facilities. Well, first off, it's even the terminology when we talk about what is mental health because, look, we all need mental health, we all need emotional well-being, and what is mental illness? So differentiating the two terms between mental health and mental illness, and what I'm talking about is the prevalence of mental illness. Or mental health conditions in people and in particular in older people so we know that the prevalence of for example depression is about one in seven people so one in seven people might experience you know sadness um, feeling lonely down isolated and the symptoms could be there for some weeks or some months and it's often not the case that people seek support straight away that symptoms seem to persist for a longer period of time before they, they recognise that perhaps they have a mood disorder and they might need help. And what I find myself doing is when I go to talk to people about the prevalence of mental health conditions in older people, they might turn around and say, we don't have anyone in our facility who's got a mental health condition or we, we had one person and they had... Yeah, they had um, schizoaffective disorder and bipolar disorder, and and they've been institutionalised for most of their lives. And they, yeah, they're no longer here with us. And I think, well, I'm not just talking about people with severe behavioural issues with people who have very distorted sense of reality versus hallucinations, delusions when they're hearing things, when they're seeing things. I'm talking about more common symptoms then can perhaps be difficult to, to recognise. Because let's face it, if a person moves into an aged care home, we might often think that it's just their personality, that they're very withdrawn, that they're quiet, or that being anxious, that it's just part of them in their, their personality rather than a mental health condition. And the reason why it's so important to discuss this is because mental health conditions are treatable. So the sooner we know where there is an issue the sooner we can help out an individual the sooner they that we know what what would work for them how we can assist them what their symptoms are and to develop individualized goals that will help them so it is important to know this sooner rather than later and in particular when we talk about the prevalence of Depression and anxiety in residential settings, it is very high. So, if the prevalence of depression is one in seven in general population, one in two in aged care settings is exceptionally high. We're talking about every second person feeling sad, down, isolated, and withdrawn. So, we need to collaboratively do something about it. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Betty this morning because. Betty is someone who was referred for psychological support. She actually sought that herself. She wanted to get help after she moved into an aged care facility and she was referred by her doctor. So Betty moved into a facility after her husband passed away and she was grieving the loss of him because they've been married for over 60 years. She's had some major life events and... You know, she's had falls and she moved into care because it was her decision to move into care. She didn't want to go and live with her daughter because her daughter was about to embark on this big trip um, with her husband. So Betty felt that she needed counselling and that it would be beneficial for her as she was having a lot of difficulty adjusting to being in care. And that's how I met Betty. So she asked the GP if she could see me and the doctor completed the paperwork And that's how I saw Betty. Now, this was a little while ago that I saw Betty initially, but the information that I'm sharing with you is still relevant today. And what is particularly useful to know is how we helped Betty um, as a team. So not just with myself, but also the role of staff and families, what Betty did to help herself and my role in in coordinating her treatment. So initially when I met Betty, she said to me that um, she felt hopeless, she felt that her life was empty, she felt very bored, she said that she didn't feel hopeful at all about her future, she she said she felt a bit off-color and she said that she feels very downhearted and blue and that she missed her old, uh, her old life. She missed her neighbours, she missed her house, she missed the birds from her garden, and that her situation was very hopeless. So in line with the initial screening assessment that I did with Betty and also speaking to, to her family and, and looking at the referral from the doctor and, and her presentation when I saw her, um I diagnosed Betty with late onset depression. She's never had history of depression before, and so this was something that you know came to her in late life, in addition to experiencing declining physical health and and hearing loss. And so I started off seeing Betty weekly and we spoke about activities that she used to enjoy doing before and why she couldn't do them with her declining senses and her declining mobility and we were able to identify activities that she still enjoyed doing but has not done in a long period of time such as spending time in the garden or going out and also helping her increase her activity levels because we know that for people who experience depression that exercise is very beneficial and keeping active. So. There's a lot of um, difficulty to motivate people of age of over 80 to do exercise and to use the term exercise because for them, it's not really, they they might fear that word and what it actually means. So instead of saying exercise, we'd said, you know, Betty, you need to come out for a walk today to keep your body moving and to keep active. So we devised an individualized plan that included these strategies about getting her out of her room, not spending too long sitting at her, you know, in her room, isolated, because that was very problematic for her. That's when all those negative thoughts came to her head. When she was sitting in her room with the door shut and spending, you know, a few hours in between the meals on her own, not participating in activities, she found it too difficult to do that and not connecting with other residents or staff. So over the course of weeks, I encouraged family when they were visiting Betty to, to take her out of the room rather than to sit in the room with her. And the family reported how beneficial it was and the change that they saw in Betty by actually getting her out of her room and encouraging her to you know, come to the garden and even on a rainy day, just going for a walk indoors. I also encouraged family to facilitate visit to some of those smaller group activities that Betty would enjoy. She was very interested in discussion groups about gardening and she took a lot of time and enjoyment out of those. So that was another goal that we worked on together. And so instead of having her blinds shut, she opened them wide and her daughter actually purchased a metallic bird for her, which Betty absolutely loves, her lovely magpie. And she looks out to him now. She puts him on the window and she opens the blinds and she calls him Mickey. And she likes for Mickey to be able to see into the garden. So those were the couple of strategies we worked on together. And so by incorporating the strategies the family were using as well as my visits to Betty, which initially started weekly, then reduced to fortnightly, then to monthly, and then bi-monthly. Betty's mental health improved, and she's no longer depressed. She feels a lot more engaged. She feels that she's doing a lot more activities than she used to do, and she doesn't describe this emptiness and boredom that she used to state earlier. Now, her hearing hasn't changed at all since I got involved with her. She still has hearing aids, and she still finds it difficult to participate in large groups but it's not affecting her ability to engage with smaller groups and to form close relationships with other residents. Betty is lucky that she doesn't have any cognitive impairment, so her memory is one of her strengths, and that's enabled her to form close relationships with her neighbours in the facility. She's far more engaged and reports far better adjustment to her environment. And although you know she still states that she dearly misses her house, her husband, her neighbourhood, and everything, she she's quite acceptive of her environment and where she is right now. So this is just an example for you of of someone who who got the psychological support to adjust to the environment, and also to highlight that those symptoms of isolation, feeling of hopelessness, helplessness along with her, you know, reduced appetite and, and, and vocalized dissatisfaction with life actually represented the fact that she had depression and it was something that we worked on together to, to improve. And so my message to you is to, you know, check in with your clients and check in with them and, and, and their well-being and, and how they're going because there's so many strategies that we could use to help them that are not based on taking pills and you know, referring to psychiatrists or waiting for conditions to get far more severe than they currently are before the person gets help. And I think that that's a problem for a lot of people in aged care is that they only seem to get attention from staff members if they have a problem. And a lot of people who feel isolated and lonely, are not, they're not going to go up to a staff member and say, I have a problem and I feel lonely and I feel isolated. Similarly, staff members who you know see that the resident's not having problems or not vocalising problems, they don't necessarily approach them because they think that they're okay, but they're not okay. And what this does in turn is that this creates a vicious cycle in which only problem behaviours are reinforced. So we, we can just brush them off, you know, um, if, if the person is constantly saying they want to go home or if the person is constantly asking for their family we might just think that that's just them and their, their, their personality rather than recognize that it, it could be anxiety disorder. On the other hand, you know, an older person might be refusing to use AIDS such as, you know, hearing aids, such as walking aids because they don't want to be perceived as being old. And this, this type of behavior is called maladaptive behavior. And it's very common in older people that they don't want to be perceived to be a burden. They don't want to be perceived as being old and disabled. And so we need to look at strategies of how we can help them use aids, use support, use services that can improve their well-being, that can improve their physical health and their quality of life. I know that aged care is a very busy environment and that we're busy brushing around, but we really need to focus on those preventative measures that promote mental health rather than mental illness. That we look at individuals and, and see what their strengths are, what they're still capable of doing rather than look at their disease and their disability. Because focusing on the positive sides of them and their, their lives can improve the outcomes because they feel that they still have some strengths. They still have skills and that they're still meaningfully participating in our society. This was. The main focus of the preventative groups that I've established in aged care homes that help older people who who move into aged care are just better and it's based on those strengths and building the skills that they already have. that can help them overcome challenges that they face as their health may decline or if they experience setbacks or if they lose a loved one whilst they're in care and so forth. We really need to focus on building those skills and strengths that can improve the resilience of older people rather than just ignore or just say, Oh, you'll be okay. Don't worry. You know, everything will be fine. That's not very reassuring. We need to increase those activity levels, keep them busier, keep them more active in order to improve mental health. So in the case of Betty, which I discussed with you just earlier, a pill alone would not have fixed her problem. A pill is not going to make you jump out of your chair and suddenly decide you're going to go walking and that you're going to go and spend time in the garden and all this. It it is through those activity levels. It is through those modified behaviours. It is through those planned activities and short-term and long-term goals that we can achieve better outcomes. So it's really important to look at that more holistically and the role that we all play in well-being of all the people and ourselves as well. You know, what what kind of activities do we engage in to look after our own well-being and how do we switch off at the end of the shift or at the end of working day when we, you know, just need to have some time to ourselves. So for younger people, it's a lot easier to switch off at the end of the day because they can drive themselves and, you know, go to the beach, go for a walk, talk to friends, go to movies, go out for dinner. But for older people, they need extra support and they need extra help from us. And that's why the focus is built so much more about that non pharmacological and psychosocial strategies that can help them and their well being rather than just escalating the concerns to the mental health team and perceiving that that does not constitute a mental health condition. That mental health condition is, is very severe behavioral. Condition that has symptoms and and that needs specialist attention. It doesn't. It doesn't. We we need to look at things, but earlier look at the strategies that are preventable or the strategies that help early on to help and improve those outcomes. And in Betty's case, she you know she was an exception because she was seeking that support from a psychologist herself. And, but not many people do that. Not many older people use mental health services. Research indicates that less than 25% of older people will go out there and seek support for their mental health. Yet on the other hand, we've got such high prevalence of mental health conditions in aged care homes and such high rates of suicide in men aged 85 plus. So the problem is too big to be ignored and we need to look at the ways on how we can improve Our collaboration and those outcomes. So, the final thought that I wanted to leave you with this morning is just to say that that we all need to improve our commitment to better well being in older people and to reduce that prevalence of emotional distress. So, our commitment is the bridge between point A and point B. And if we can strengthen that commitment, to improving emotional care and helping all the people feel better, more engaged, less isolated, in late life. We're helping them. We're improving their dated activities. And we're also improving the quality of workplaces where we work because the better our client feels, the better we feel, the more satisfied families are and the more enjoyment we get out of our jobs. That is another episode of The Voice of Aged Care, done and dusted. Be sure to become a subscriber on your podcast app of choice so that you don't miss out when I release the next episode. I'd love to know what you're thinking of this podcast and what you'd like to hear in the future. So leave a rating and review too. Over on my website, wisecare.com.au, you can find my free guide full of practical tips on supporting older people with cognitive impairment. Let's face it, sometimes it's the impaired memory aspect of supporting the aged that feels the most challenging. And I want to give you practical strategies to deal with this. Go to wisecare.com.au for your free copy of this amazing resource. See you in the next episode.